Hello, and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Laura Barton. And I'm Michelle Jones. And this week we're covering our lesson in our Come Follow Me manual, Hebrews chapter 7 through 13, titled, An High Priest of Good Things to Come. And this is a continuation from last week. Last week we were talking about uh, the, the first half of Hebrews. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically, that there were some new members of the church that were struggling with leaving old traditions, and the author of Hebrews specifically talks a lot about the Israelites and the law of Moses, speaking specifically of the Israelites in the wilderness, and spoke of their doubts and where those doubts came from, their fear, not this traditional mortal fear, but fear of believing the Lord's prophet when he taught them that they could see God and live, the fear to move to a higher spiritual level and to have God dwell with them. And so this week, the author goes on to encourage the saints to strengthen one another and that through their faith and obedience, through the sacrifice of the Savior, they can now offer a sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, which leads to sanctification. And so when we finished last week, we were talking about Melchizedek and the Melchizedek priesthood, and that is where we start off today. So I want to bounce off of something that you said in your introduction, which is talking about fear and what they were afraid of. And as I was looking through this, one of our favorite topics just like jumped into my mind, um, looking at the Melchizedek priesthood compared to the the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood, kind of like the lower and the higher priesthood. And we've been talking about the lower and the higher law. And I was thinking about, well, what is the higher law? And I, and I thought maybe it's our faith growing up. And just like as children, like developmentally, we start out being very concrete. We're really concrete thinkers and we need things to be tangible and to be able to sort of have a physical representation of things, thinking of things like philosophically is not something that children are even really capable of doing. That makes no sense to them. And it's interesting because I feel like a lot of these higher law principles really are less tangible and concrete. And if if I'm thinking of it correctly, a lot of these, um, a lot of the Israelites way that they had been taught to look toward the savior was very concrete, very tangible, very, um, symbol oriented and so letting go of that concreteness it is a little fearful because am I understanding it right everything is sort of like thoughts absolutely and I think specifically when we talk about the Melchizedek priesthood we're actually talking about the priesthood of the um, order of the son of God and that all priesthood is an appendage to that priesthood so even though we do talk about the higher and lower law, the Aaronic priesthood is really an appendage to the Melchizedek priesthood. It is the preparatory priesthood. So very much the way you're talking about it, the Aaronic priesthood prepares you for the Melchizedek priesthood that is one that isn't as concrete. It is not as specific to the duties and the actual physical things that consistently pointed the Israelites to Christ. And so it is interesting to think of of the law of Moses in that in all the concrete commandments they were given, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of concrete things to do, and yet these all pointed them to Christ and in preparation for Christ. 
And that is part of the reason why they struggled too, is that when you get so caught up in that concreteness, sometimes you miss the mark. You are so caught up in it that you forget that this is about a higher purpose. And that higher purpose is Christ and bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And as we look at it in that context, you know, starting from that point, I was thinking that the end of chapter, the book of Hebrews in Hebrews in general reminds us that all truth can be circumscribed into one great whole, which is Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through all the dispensation of times, I was thinking, is there anything else in history that can say that from the beginning of time, Adam was pointed to Christ and here we are in our modern days looking to Christ and that this priesthood has been here throughout all these dispensations. Um, Adam had the order of the Son of God given to him. That priesthood was given to Adam. And through Adam, it was passed to Enoch, and from Enoch to Noah, and from Noah to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, this Melchizedek priesthood was passed on. Moses, with the Israelites, was given that same priesthood through his father-in-law, Jethro. And so whether or not during different dispensations, many people have the Melchizedek priesthood, those prophets have had the priesthood of the order of the Son of God, and it is the same priesthood. This is not a priesthood that's changing depending on which dispensation you're in. And yet, I I was going to say, it seems like I'm kind of cracking up because you're like summarizing chapter 10 right now, or no, 11, which is kind of awesome. 11 is the faith one, but yeah, I know. 11, but I... You know, I think it's interesting how all of these things are steady and consistent and true through all the dispensations and whether there are more concrete details or fewer in that particular time. It's interesting how everything can point to the Savior and yet it seems as though consistently that got missed, that that is actually what it was about because if... I mean, obviously, for some of the people here in this time that Hebrews was written, they did follow the Savior. And so they were able to, like, see where it was pointing to and be able to make that connection. But for other people that are persecuting them, even though they are following the law, they're missing the point of the law, which I think is, like, fascinating. Right. And and I, and again, applicable to our time, because as much as I appreciate all the wonderful blessings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints— And all the programs of the church, they all point us to Christ. And when we are not starting from the point of Christ, we can miss that. We can get caught up in those programs. We can get caught up in the culture, which is very similar to what's happening here. And so I really appreciate that Melchizedek is the starting point for today because it is part of the symbolism of Melchizedek that keeps us tied to Christ in that it's not tied to this world. So let me explain what I'm thinking in that sense. Melchizedek, actually, let me dazzle you with my Hebrew. Okay, I'm, I'm really excited now. Okay, so, um, so m- many decades ago, um, I minored in Hebrew, and I think the many next... Many decades? I okay, feel like that couple, might be an exaggeration. A couple decades ago. Okay. I think that these two verses are about as much as my education will shine ever. Okay. So thanks for letting me do that. Although these, although these scriptures actually do it for you, but so 
In chapter 7, verses 1 and 2... Oh, right at the start. Right at the beginning, we get the story of who Melchizedek is. And modern-day revelation gives us really wonderful added revelation to this. Um, Alma chapter 13 is a really great chapter for learning more about Melchizedek. But his name literally translates to king of righteousness. So Melech is king and Zedek is righteousness. That's one of the reasons why you minor in Hebrew, because like the law of Moses, everything points to their culture striving to be more righteous and looking towards even the Savior. And so Melchizedek as king of righteousness is very literal. And then it says he was the king of Salem, which becomes Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Yerushalim, and Yeru is city of Shalom, Shalem. And Shalom, if... Shalom means high and by in Hebrew, and it also means peace, and it also means complete and whole. And so he was literally the king of righteousness, the prince of peace. And so that's what it says here right in front of us. And that he had, without father or mother, without a genealogy, he has no beginning of days or end of life, but similar to the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And so it's interesting to me that this is the introduction of Melchizedek, the priest, the great high priest that this priesthood was named after. Because even though it was the order of the Son of God, they didn't want to have vain repetition with saying that over and over again. And so the great high priest Melchizedek took on this the name of this priesthood. But similar to the Son of God, he had no lineage. We know that the Aaronic priesthood, that with the Israelites, the, the tribe of Levi, the Levites were set apart to to be the ones that took care of the temple. And so literally the descendants of Aaron do that Aaronic priesthood duty. And they, the tithes and offerings actually went to their well-being, and that was their profession. And it was because of their lineage that they had that profession. And so it's very interesting and specifically intentionally symbolic that there is no lineage associated with this priesthood it is literally coming to the Son of God that gives you the opportunity to have this priesthood. And I thought um, the Joseph Smith translation in here makes it a little bit more clear because when at, at, at a first read, it almost seems like, like in order to be a priest, you cannot have like family, essentially. But when we add in the Joseph Smith, at least for me on a quick read, maybe without all of that previous knowledge to it, but the Joseph Smith brings in and it says um, that it's, and you may not see the distinction because we're reading different translations, but um, that it's actually the order of the priesthood that has no lineage, not the man himself, which I thought was interesting because I'm, so here's one of my thoughts as I'm looking at reading this, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is like so much understanding and knowledge of the priesthood and ordinances and temples and all of these things right here in the New Testament that like millions and millions, I don't know, is it a billion? I don't know. Lots of Christians throughout the world have this scripture and yet there's still so much confusion, even though to me it seems like there's so much pretty clear truth here. And I wondered if, you know, I, 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 I guess it brought to mind the importance of some of these little tidbits that we get added in to our study because we have 
revelation and modern day revelation from prophets and also from our own direct connection to heaven. Right. Absolutely. And the Joseph Smith translation specifically, I think for the end of Hebrews is very helpful. I'm glad you have that in front of you because this doesn't do it as much, my translation, but yes, specifically it's referring to the priesthood, which has no father or mother genealogy for the priesthood because it's the power of God on earth. Right. And so yes, without Joseph Smith's translations, this is very confusing and that may be very well be one of the reasons why other Christians don't delve deep into this because just us and our quick readings recognize how much we are dependent on Joseph Smith giving us modern day revelations. For instance, just knowing what the Melchizedek priesthood is, our modern revelation, just as members of the church, we talk about it all the time and we don't necessarily take the time to state what is specifically the difference between the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. I think the power priesthood being the power of God on earth is something that we've talked more and more about the past couple years, but um, we do have some really important modern day revelation in Doctrine and Covenants section 84, which talks about the oath and the covenant, and then Doctrine and Covenants section 107 talks specifically about the differences between the Melchizedek priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. Would you like to hear what it says in Doctrine and Covenants section 107? Yes, I'm glad Thank you, you asked. Thank yeah. you. Okay, so Doctrine and Covenants 107 says, The power and authority of the higher or Melchizedek priesthood to hold the keys of all the spiritual blessings of the church and to have the privilege of receiving the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, to have the heavens opened unto them, to commune with the general assembly and church of the firstborn and to enjoy the communion and presence of God the Father and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And then it goes on to talk about the Aaronic priesthood is about administering the things to get you there. And so there's a very clear scripture that states that these are really the opportunities for you to become into the presence of God and to enjoy communion with him and, and understand those powers and principalities. And so for those that do not have modern revelation, I can see the difficulty in discerning some of this. And so... So as they go on, it talks about lineage for quite some time and, and the significance of that. Um, so continuing chapter 7, it talks about how Christ is actually from the lineage of Judah. And so it's important to remember who the audience is he's talking about. These, these people, modern day or primitive day Christians, were really caught up in lineage. And so that's why there's this big emphasis in it. And he's now pointing them to the fact that because the Lord is your great high priest forever, he is the guarantor of a better covenant. And these things that are worldly things like your lineage and who's literally going to take the shoe bread from the temple is not the emphasis. The emphasis is that we have a new and everlasting covenant in Jesus Christ and in the power of of the order of the son of God that comes from his priesthood. And so they do have to take a lot of time kind of switching gears and trying to get those scales of darkness off their eyes and see the new, new way to look at where power really comes from. It's not from your birthright. And, 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 and I like how in uh, verse 19, um, the author, which we're going to go with Paul here, you know, he says, um, I think a little bit about why it's worth the struggle to make that transition for these early Christians, because by so doing, they can really 
um, have a better hope and be able to draw close to God because of this new perspective. It's a lot more direct our connection to God and our access to his power and his understanding. Well, and what was it in chapter and verse 19 that you read? Because my verse 19 doesn't talk about, um, doesn't use the word hope, but I, I highlighted it because I thought it was very interesting. Um, so I'll just read the verse. It's pretty short. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Oh, well, I'm in the wrong chapter. So that's Would what, that be helpful? Oh, I'm like way, I was, wow. Okay. So 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope was introduced through which we draw nearer to God and consequently have a new and everlasting covenant in Christ. And that we no longer have a need for these high priests to offer sacrifices daily because that has no everlasting covenant associated with it. That is something that you have to constantly keep doing. Whereas Christ has come and he's, he's, he sacrificed himself. And so we have a better way. And, and again, that's what I kept thinking is that the Aaronic priesthood is an appendage to the Melchizedek priesthood. It is preparatory. That is how we get to where we need to be. That is how we get the ordinances that we need to come to the higher law. But it keeps saying, I love that the word better is used over and over in my translation because Yes, it's wonderful to look at the law of Moses and to look at these things that we have with the Aaronic priesthood as they show us how to, in chapter um, 8, come to the better promises. Yes, I really liked even just starting out chapter 8. It, like Right away, he's just focusing them and using things that they're already familiar with um, like with the tabernacle of Moses, he begins introducing it here. And then, of course, we talk about it a lot more in chapter nine. But um, I really liked this reference saying um, that we have such an high priest, who, of course, is our savior, who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. And I really appreciated that he's like showing them this pattern, just how we have the high priest who is the sole person that can go into the Holy of Holies in that one time a year, we actually have our true high priest, like the ultimate high priest, the Savior, and that he really is the minister of the true tabernacle of the celestial kingdom and how that all comes together. Right, and we talked about this a lot last week, but it was interesting to read this again and to just think of the literalness of it for the Israelites as they had a temporary tabernacle they would set up and they would move it around. And in the Holy of Holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, they would carry around the tablets. And that this these laws that were written on, on the tablets were so important that they were in the Holy of Holies and constantly reinforced and every day there were sacrifices being made and yet Christ comes along and he says because of my body and my sacrifice all of this all my laws will now in verse 10 of chapter 8 will put the laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and yet this is a group of people that have literally been carrying tablets around and literally been doing sacrifices daily that they don't have to do because he's like and now 
You can have this relationship with me. I can see how that's a big, these are big differences. And, and, and I think it goes back to what I brought up earlier, which is they're taking these really concrete, tangible steps and, you know, what a beautiful thing to have the law written in your heart, but you also can't see it. You can't see the evidence of it. I think it introduces, like, we have to rely on the Lord so much more to get feedback for if we're doing it correctly when it is written in our heart and it's our direct access to him as opposed to, did I choose the correct animal and did I burn that properly? And, right, that is something that is more objective and someone can, like, validate it and reinforce it for you that everything went as planned. But it's a lot more intimate of a relationship what is being introduced here. Right, and I think about it with our youth and how important the Aaronic Priesthood is because of that very reason. My son is 16, and he prepares the sacrament from time to time. And I think, wouldn't it be great if he could um, take the time to more, with his own hands, really prepare that sacrament um, from the very beginning, have to, like find a sacrifice himself because then it may connect a little bit more there's almost that luxury of taking the sacrament weekly where we're not um where we have to come with a broken heart and a contrite spirit that is our sacrifice for the sacrament now whereas they used to literally have to find a physical sacrifice to pay for their sins and yet my son as a participating in the priesthood weekly or preparing the church house that is his sacrifice and yet is that connection being made it is preparatory but um that's where that connection comes and that's how they're being prepared to understand those concepts i mean i would argue that that work needed to be done in both instances because people could prepare a sacrifice and just be checking it off the list and not really making that connection Right. And or, so, and, and so both times we do have to see that, but I wonder if we could, cause this week in come follow me, they had an actual video with this, this priest that went back in time. Yes, and, I saw that. And I was just thinking that I want to show that video to the boys and have them pretend because just seeing the flip side of it, I think makes you go, Oh yeah, that is what I'm doing. This is, this is what we're still doing. And so when you look at the sanctuaries, all of chapter 9, do you want to move on to chapter 9? Sure. Okay, so all of chapter 9 specifically is illustrating the what the temple was like in that temporary tabernacle. And again, on in our Come Follow Me lesson, they had a video for this that I thought was very helpful. I did too, and I really loved in that video how it pointed out that the different physical components of the tabernacle represented like our telestial life just being in the courtyard and how like in the video as you like kind of have like a a first person view of like going inside it did feel different than when you were looking at it from the outside and then from there going into um, the first level of the sanctuary and then into the holy of holies was it called that still in the tabernacle Mm -hmm. okay being the terrestrial and the celestial. And I guess one thing that stood out to me that I thought was interesting is that only the high priest, right, could go into the Holy of Holies. That was, like, very limited who was going into that area. Well, yes. And to just throw in extra, and then the Davidic kings in certain times. 
Okay. But yes, but I thought, I mean, still extremely limited compared to now we are being taught that access to the throne of God is something that we can begin the journey to all of us. Right. And so just to, to remind everyone about something we talked about last week on the day of atonement, the high priest would go in with a sacrifice once a year. And that once a year sacrifice was in, um, was symbolic of the entire Israelite sins and reminding them of their sins. And that the high priest, before he could go in, also had to do a sacrifice to make himself holy to go in. And so we're reminded again that that high priest isn't even holy enough to really do this. Yet Christ has rented the veil of the temple with his death. The literal veil of the temple at his time on the cross was rent, showing symbolically that Christ giving his sacrifice has now rent the veil and that we have access to the celestial kingdom coming face to face with with God. And so when I was looking at the the video that they have in our lesson, we have the outer court, we have that holy room, and we have the holy of holies, which they compared to the terrestrial, terrestrial, and celestial kingdoms. And so by going into the holy of holies, we get to come face to face with God and be able to be partake of the blessings of the celestial kingdom, which is what it says in chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ has come as high priest of the good things to come passing through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, which is not of this creation. And he entered the holy place once and for all, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, which is our quote for the week, right? Christ is the high priest of good things to come. Okay, and this second half of chapter 9, I just found fascinating. I actually marked quite a lot in it. I noticed that they talk a lot about the shedding of blood and that that is a really key part of what we're talking about here. And I'm sure that you'll have some interesting things to share about that. My like summary that I wrote for myself, so summary according to Michelle, Jesus is the sacrifice through death we live. And like I was thinking about blood as a nurse, I, I think of blood, you know, it is our life force. Without blood, there is no life. And that the shedding of blood to me represents death. And it reminded me of a conversation that we've had earlier and of um, Adam Miller's book, An Early Resurrection, when he talks about like that part of this seems to be talking about like, like it's really fascinating how we talk about death as a means for life because that feels counterintuitive, but I like how Adam Miller pulled that together and that it's really a death to life without the Savior, a death to life without um, redemption and the ability to be connected to God. And so I just thought that that was all really fascinating. And I really would like to connect with you with Adam Miller because I really appreciate him, but I haven't, I haven't, I keep meaning to read that and I haven't, but I will say this is that, wow, I have lots of things to say, but I will say specifically about this, that we do offer ourselves that there is something about death. You do not inherit, you do not receive an inheritance in somebody until somebody passes away. 
there is something that's unlocked through that death, the sacrifice of some life. And we as new creatures can give up our life as a sacrifice, that we can die to the things of this mortal world and our mortal sins and and turn that over to God and be aligned with his will. And so I think there's lots of levels of symbolism there. But for me, I remember being very impressed with how much the atonement is about the entire mission of the Savior. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he felt the sins of the world. But we also know that it is on the crucifixion, it is through the crucifixion that that when he died on that cross, that the veil was rent. And yet we don't focus on the crucifixion as much. Um, and yet Christ was even foreordained at the beginning of time to do this. And so for me, the atonement is a comprehensive experience. Of course, he took the sins of the world on upon him in Gethsemane, but he continued to do such insurmountable things for humanity until that moment when he said it is finished. And so I think of when we talk about blood, I think it's important to remember that crucifixion, that he continued suffering, that his flesh was rent like the veil, that it is literally his physical death that is part of the consummation of the atonement. And it is significant that it wasn't finished, that he said it is finished the the last thing before he died, that, it, you know... It wasn't finished just because the Garden of Gethsemane was finished or it wasn't finished because he fulfilled everything up until that point that every piece of it was needed. There's something really critical to all the pieces of the process, including the death. I probably just summarized what you just said and didn't offer anything new. Well, that's but because that was me validating that that makes sense. To it's me. really interesting when you start thinking of it after the Garden of Gethsemane, so much still happens. And I think it's very symbolic for our life to reflect on that, even immediately after the Garden of Gethsemane. And maybe I'm going on a tangent here, but, you know, Peter cut off somebody's ear and Christ healed him. After all that suffering, he immediately doesn't even flinch about healing somebody that's attacking him. And yet if you read another account... You don't even get the account of the healing. You get account of distractions. And so even if you start looking between the Garden of Gethsemane and the, the and when he states it is finished on the cross, there is a whole nother microcosm there of things to think about. And so I don't think we can get that all in at the end of this chapter nine. But, but there's a lot of significance there that I feel like as maybe members of the church, because we don't emphasize the crucifixion as much sometimes that we could spend more time thinking about. And and I actually do think it's worth, like, like as you were talking, I was thinking about how sometimes after we've been through a really big struggle and, like, you know that I have had this experience where I'm like, okay, well, I've done this, like, crazy hard thing. Why is it still hard? <laughs> like, like, where is the break? Where is the rest? And yet if we're patterning, patterning our lives after the Savior... It is, you know, in some ways extremely understandable that there is not a rest. We continue just as the Savior did. We stand up from our sacrifice and maybe the next thing we do is heal someone in need. And maybe the next thing that happens is that we're knocked back down again. 
Absolutely. And last week we talked about that in his greatest trials, Christ didn't turn to fear. He turned to God and he said, not my will, but thine be done. And then after that, he keeps having more trials and he's carrying a cross on his back after all this weakness and he's put up upon a cross and he says, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? And we know he feels lonely. And so even after all this, he still has to endure so much. And so, yes, I absolutely think we can learn a lot from that, that even in our hardest times, there may be something after that, but it is through the suffering and the obedience and the suffering that we become more like Christ and we can turn to Christ. And so there's probably a lot there to look at. And probably not just there may be something more like... There is. There is. So let's... It's part of it. And part of it is like that, I guess in some ways that's comforting. Like it's not a big shock when that comes. It makes you more like the Savior. I guess so. So, but the other thing that... It just shows how everything is symbolic of Christ. Everything's turning to Christ. I was reading in chapter... um, Or in this chapter, chapter 9, verse uh, 19 and 20... That the people, um, they sprinkled the blood on the book and that there was water and red wool and hyssop. I don't know if that's how you say it. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you to obey. Just think about what we just discussed and how in their rituals constantly there was red wool. Hyssop is like a bitter herb. That there were constantly things telling them of what Christ would foretelling. We know there was the scarlet rope that he wore on the way to the cross. We know that there was vinegar put into his mouth when he was thirsty. And yet they've got this as part of the rituals and they don't even recognize it when it comes. And that is one of the big things between the Garden of Gethsemane and the crucifixion is there are so many distractions that people will not recognize unless they are focused on Christ. Unless the distractions of our world are put to the side that this can be right in front of you and you can be participating in this constantly. You have got to put Christ first and foremost to see him in your life. And part of that is by shedding your perception of how it's going to look when the Savior mm, manifests himself or his will for us in our life. Because I think part of what happened here is not only did they perceive that the Savior was going to come and sort of save them from everything politically, but even in these smaller things, even though they could have easily recited all of these things that were foretelling about the Savior, because it was manifesting in a way that they weren't expecting, they they didn't recognize it. It's not that they didn't know the prophecy. Chances are they knew the prophecy, but they... It didn't happen in the way they thought it would, which is why I feel like it's so important for us to constantly get out of our own way, to, to, to get out of our head and to be able to be open to how the Lord's promises will be made manifest and that there's a pretty good chance it's not going to be in the way that we think it will. Well, and I think specifically that as we talked about at the beginning of what was going on last time, that the Lord's prophet was teaching them that they could see God and live, that they needed to turn to Christ. And yet in our time, we have a prophet today that is telling us exactly what to do. And I think that's one of the keys to making sure we're focused on this when Christ comes. Um, I, I recognized that this week and I was talking to somebody and I thought, I remember 
in the past couple of decades hearing conversations over and over again about, you know, doesn't seem like there's anything new about conference and they're telling me the same things over and over again. And I just want to point out that in the past couple, few conferences, they haven't been saying the same things over and over again. They've been telling us they things have been changing. And, and President Nelson has told us in April, conference will be completely different. So we're not even getting sub, subtle signs that we need to be focusing on what the prophet is giving us. We know that we need to be focusing on these things and that he is giving us the opportunity to grow closer to Christ if we can focus on those things. And so as you were talking about that, I thought about how applicable it is to, to us right now. And so, uh, so there are changes being made. In chapter 10, it continues talking about the imperfection of the law of Moses and the perfection that comes through Christ. And that um, the law of Moses, where they were literally moving that tabernacle and taking the, the Ark of the Covenant with them and moving the tablets around, that I was thinking in chapter 10, verse 16, it says, um, This is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them in their minds. I will not remember their sins and their lawlessness any longer. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. And it's reinforcing these same principles that Christ is now who we look to, that we don't have to lug around our old traditions but we do need to focus on Christ and becoming perfect through Christ. And then in verse 19, just coming right at the tail of that, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. It's yes. beautiful. Which reminds us of, of that scripture in chapter 4 that we love so much that we can approach him with the confidence of his grace because he's been through it all, because he knows us, and then in um, f- like 15 verses later, he says in verse 38, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are among those who have faith and preserve their souls. There are a lot of, I think one of the reasons why Hebrews people get a little bit bogged down by it is I think it's one of the books in the New Testament, or I feel confident that makes more references to the Old Testament than anything else. So you kind of have to go back and forth. And so this is reinforcing the idea, because this is quoting a lot of Old Testament here. But those that have come to him with confidence, that the Lord, once you're there, do not shrink back. We are among those who have faith and preserve their souls, that we've talked about that before, that we are on the battle line, that we're holding that line sometimes. Maybe we're not always just actively engaged or actively fighting, but we always hold the line. We do not go back. And I love how, like that visual of that, that we're not going to shrink, <clears throat> the visual that came into my head as you were talking was, you know, the Savior has led the way. He's shown us how how we can get into the presence of God and to sort of make it through this whole earth experience. So he has shown us the way he's and he's and he is like our trail guide. He's showing us. And I picture him reaching his hand back to say, come, come follow me. Right. Come with me and I'm going to show you how to get through this. And so when we feel that need to shrink back sometimes, 
if we are brave and we lean into it and we lean forward into it and reach for him, our hand won't be empty. Um, and that visual of reaching into him, we talked all last week about Christ being the captain of our salvation. So when we're talking about holding that line and not shrinking back and being part of the value, the, the battle, I just now saw him as our captain as we hold that line. That he is there to, to really guide us in there. And I love how uh, chapters 9 and 10, well, okay, so chapter 11 to set it up is really teaching us something about faith and how many things can be accomplished through faith. Faith is the power. And then I, and then in verse 12, to me, I really, chapter 12, chapter 12. Thank you. I really appreciated how it came full circle Mm -hmm. in the sense that it felt like at the practical application, like, okay, I've told you all these amazing things that have been accomplished by faith, by these prophets and these people that feel larger than life and maybe beyond our reach. So here's some hope and encouragement after this lofty instruction that I've given you about faith. So What's, that's my that is my attempt at an overview for chapters 11 and 12. And I am so in sync with that. It's so interesting to think I went to a baptism this Saturday for an 8-year-old and saw the building bro- blocks of the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. And the first principle of Jesus Christ's gospel is the crowning principle of faith. And yet an eight-year-old could understand that. And I talked to this eight-year-old about it, and he talked about, we talked about how faith can start as a little seed. And he said, and my dad said, I can move mountains with it. And I thought, you got a good dad, you know? Yeah, that that is pretty fantastic. And I loved, so... I got like slightly word nerdy in chapter 11, verse one, because this is something that will sound familiar. And I felt like here getting into chapters 11 and 12, there were like several verses that I'm like, oh, these sound like so familiar. These feel like. And so wait, are you saying they feel so familiar because you're like Abraham and you're like all these Moses and all these people they refer to? I'm just saying that I've heard these phrases before. Oh, okay. And I like being I able that. to pull them I through. That you have I, that kinship. I actually them. do feel like I am a woman of faith and that I do understand and know that through my faith I have the power to accomplish miraculous things. So I do feel confident in that. In my sphere, I am in no way comparing myself to these prophets in their sphere. Really, because they actually, that, that is completely the promise of the oath and the covenant for all of us: is that Abraham, by faith, departed out of the wilderness and was a Bedouin and said, "Okay, the Lord told me to do this." And the promise is that He is the Father of of so many people that He didn't see before He died. And yet that is the promise that we are given. And I recall in the beginning of chapter 11, it says that in verse 6, the one that approaches God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek after him. And I just thought about how interesting faith is in things that aren't seen, but that you know that God is there and that his promise is something that you care more about than anything else. That is that is accurate. If you were saying that literally about me and not you as in the general podcasting audience, which both are true. So so we have all these awesome people it, in well, and, chapter 11. And in the very first verse, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, 
So I looked in my handy dandy thesaurus for the word substance, and there were a couple of words that were similar, which is matter or essence. And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, that could be a whole conversation right. about the tangible power of faith. And then, and the, that's the Joseph Smith translation, substance, because it used to be assurance, and or assurances in a lot of these. Um, translations and Joseph Smith said substance and I think there's a lot more substance to the word substance when yes we're talking about faith. and I was like that's like a whole conversation mm-hmm. all by mm-hmm. itself but I thought that that was worth bringing up as something to ponder yes let's ponder on that what is the substance and then the other word was core so if we substitute that word in faith is the core of things hoped for that that is sort of where we build our strength as we have a hope in Christ, that faith is how we come to that. It's our pathway to hope, which is essential to carry on. And my translation says faith is being confident in what we hope for, being convinced of things we do not see. And in this case, I like my translation better. I do too. Oh, yes. Okay. So, and that's what's so impressive about all these examples is that they consider more the treasure that they know they can have because of that relationship with the Savior. They can feel that, and that is what gives them their confidence. That is what gives them the substance in their life because there's a lot of other things that that can be your reward, but their reward is the knowledge that they have that relationship with God, and that can um, motivate a lot of faith. And I think of... You, you, you use this great example of toddlers not knowing the ways of God, that parents are like God and that toddlers are like us in this life. And if you just think of how children learn, you know, a small child may know that the beach exists but never been there before because they've seen pictures and they've seen movies and people have brought them back shells and people tell them about it. And with each piece, your confidence grows stronger and stronger that there's a beach there. That parent at any time could take them and show them the beach. But God's ways are higher than our ways and God's time is different than our time and he knows what we need. And so there may be times when we just need to be dependent on him and we know that Christ's grace is sufficient for us. And then as we're faithful, that all things will come into one great whole for us and our mission here on earth. That's one of the things that the power of God can do for us in our lives. Um, The sisters, the General Relief Society presidency at the Young Women's uh, BYU Conference or at the Women's General Conference this spring gave an amazing presentation about priesthood power. Are you talking about BYU Women's Conference? Yes. Okay. And I recommend it to everyone to look at the General Relief Society presidency and what they said there. Sister Bingham herself specifically said, what is the power? What is priesthood power? And she said, it's the power of God on earth and it's to bring to pass immortality and eternal life of man. But she also broke down exactly what we have access to through the priesthood as women. And she even bullet pointed some many things. And she said, we have the power to speak for speak God's words. We have the power to know what we have been foreordained to do in this life. And she broke it down and made no, they, they made sure it was very clear that we have access to this power through our faith in Jesus Christ. And that that is a power that can move mountains. And that in some ways, our power to, um, or our ability to use God's power here on earth might 
be largely limited by our inability to recognize that we have access to the power. And I really liked, um, you know, in the slew of all these people that they mentioned, Paul mentions in verse 11, Sarah, and he said, through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive. And I liked the second part, because she judged him faithful who had promised. So she, even though it made no sense, this is basically impossible that she was going to conceive a child at this point. This is Abraham, Sarah. But she judged that God was faithful and that that was more true than that she was past the age of childbearing to her. Absolutely. And her husband's the same, the same concept because Isaac was the promised one to give Abraham all that posterity. It was through the line of Isaac that he was promised all that posterity. And yet when God asked him to sacrifice him, it says here that even though that's the promise you've given me, I guess I'll kill him because you could raise him from the dead if that's what needs to happen. Yes, that's some significant faith there. So, And I think that's the kind of faith, like that sophistication level, I think is actually really important for us to get through these days that we're in, to recognize that the promises of God are sure, even if when we're standing from our perspective looking at it, we feel like there's no possible way that this can come together as God has promised. So, and speaking of getting through it, let's go to chapter 12 and the very first verse of chapter 12 I think succinctly talks about all that one these wonderful examples in chapter 11 since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses we must put off every weight and sin that clings closely to us and run with endurance the race that is set out before us looking to Jesus the architect and perfecter of our faith clearly we recognize that Christ is the way and all these examples he just shared for us, they are our, they encompass us. They are our compass. We can look to these people as great pillars of faith to strengthen us and, and look to these examples that they can help direct us and guide us. Yes, I, I, my little subtitle for that section was The Savior is Our Source of Hope. And I also write, wrote, For Me. With an exclamation point, because I thought, I want to remember that. I want to remember to run with patience the race that is set before me, because it has been set before me by the Lord. He knows my course. He knows the course of my race and that it's going to bring me to the finish line exactly where I want to be. So I just need to run that course with patience and not question where it's going. And I also loved when we're talking about like that encouragement in verses 12, 13, 14, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, um, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. I just loved all of that. So, Amen is what I say to yes, that. Yes, and, and I think specifically he wants us to do that so that we can strengthen each other, so that our faith can encompass others and be a strength to them. The thing that I really loved about chapter 12, because we get chapter 11 a lot as a great example of faith, this, this wonderful discourse, I loved him talking about that disciples are disciplined. 
that we have this faith and we gain this faith through our discipline, that the Lord will discipline us, not, not as an unmerciful God, but as a loving parent. And that without discipline, that we are not truly his children. We remember that it's Christ's obedience through his suffering that makes him the captain of our salvation. And we, too, need to learn those same skills. And quite frankly, without our di- without the discipline of discipleship, we're just not going to be prepared. So it's not compassionate as the captain of the battle for him to let us lounge around and be lazy leading up to the battle because we won't be prepared. And the e- and making it easiest easy for us does not help us value this amazing gift that he's given us. It is something that we want to work on, work for so that we understand the value of it. We do not want to be like Esau that sold his birthright because he just didn't self gratification worked for him. He he talks about how we can really treasure this and that as we become disciplined we are better disciples and are more grateful for this opportunity to become one with him. And so the ending of, of Hebrews talks more and more about the things that we can do to become disciples of Christ. And chapter 13 specifically seems like a primitive temple recommend to me. In the first verse, he talks about have brotherly love continually, be hospitable to others. Marriage should be honored Our behavior must be free from the love of money. This is all in the first five verses. So these are very specific behaviors that can help us be more disciplined so that we can increase our faith, so we can look to the Savior. Show love and kindness. Remember your leaders. Sustain them. Um, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And then as we do this, in verse 13, it says, let us... um, become those people that are outside the camp. So in other words, he's saying, you know what, if you don't, if you feel like this is making you feel separate more and more, that's okay because you're part of, you're part of the Lord's work. And then, yes. And then in verse six, he says, so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I feel like that partners with that really well to, that we're focused not only on following the Savior, but on the comfort and reassurance to know that the Lord is with us in this. And I guess to close, it says in verse 15 that through Christ, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, which is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name, and always be grateful for the sacrifice and for the direction we're given to become closer and closer to the Savior. The book of Hebrews gives us so much doctrine. I'm so grateful for this treasure and for the opportunity we've had to study and come follow me because it's been introduced to me um, on a deeper level. And as we will move on to James next week, I'm excited about that, but I recognize that I will be looking back to Hebrews because I've gotten through a few levels in the past couple weeks. But this is just a comprehensive gospel where the truth is circumscribed into one great whole, that the power of God is on the earth now through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then as we look to him, we can have access to that power in our lives daily now. Yes, I I 100% felt the same way that 
Hebrews is a book of scripture that I will be coming back to again and again to continue to study. Well, thank you. And next week we will we'll be moving on to James, which is where Joseph Smith was inspired to pray and receive so much inspiration from James. So All right. it's exciting. This just gets more and more exciting every week. I look forward to next week, Laura. Thanks.